Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Malcolm White. I'm your host today, along with Kevin Farrell, our producer, and my special guest today, Trisha Walker. Hey, Malcolm. Welcome, Trisha. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. How was the drive down from the Delta? You know, it was beautiful. You know, everybody's cutting beans and corn, so it was a little dusty, Mm -hmm. (laughs) a little dust in the air, but it was a beautiful, beautiful drive. For our listeners, today I'm speaking with Mississippi singer and songwriter Trisha Walker. Her songs have been recorded by many, many people, but among those, Faith Hill, Patti Loveless, and Alison Krauss, whose performance of Trisha's Looking in the Eyes of Love won a Grammy Award for all involved. This is true. What year was that? Uh, 97 or 8, right around there. Trisha is a recording artist, and her songs thoughtfully capture the songwriter's view of the South with well-placed lyrics and music reflecting her folk, R&B, and storytelling influences. Tricia uh, offers an entertaining slice of her places and times delivered with a beautiful voice, strong musicianship, and the ease of a veteran entertainer. A long-standing member of the Mississippi Arts Commission's artist roster, Tricia writes, performs, and produces acoustic singer-songwriter shows through her company, Big Front Porch Productions. There you go. (laughs) Welcome. Thank you. Again, I'm so happy to be here. So July the 1st, new chapter for Trisha Walker, right? New chapter. New chapter, new record. New record. New set of songs. Half new and half old, just not recorded before. Yeah, July the 1st, I, you know, for the last 13 years, I have been directing the Delta Music Institute Entertainment Program at Delta State University. Uh, Came back from Nashville when they just were starting that idea and had the great opportunity to kind of put into place everything I had learned all those years in Nashville and came back and kind of, with a great team of people, built a program. And about a year or so ago, it felt like time to step away and hand the reins over to somebody else so I could turn back into a musician. (laughs) Yeah. But now you were born and raised where? I was born right down the street here in Jackson, but I grew up in Fayette, Mississippi, over in Jefferson County, southwest part of the state. And what took your family from Jackson to Fayette? Well, my mother was from Jefferson County. Mm -hmm. She was from a little railroad town called Harriston, which was two or three miles outside of Fayette, but it was a little railroad junction. Uh, My daddy was born in South Mississippi, but he really grew up in Jackson. And so uh, when they married, they moved down to Southwest Mississippi, although he commuted a lot to Jackson for the work he was in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What year did you go off to Nashville? I moved to Nashville in August of 1980. It was a hot Mississippi day. I'd been living here in Jackson. I was finishing up a master's degree and singing at uh, some of the area pubs around town, like George Street Grocery and Poets and the Widow Watson. And uh, and then on the other flip side of that, I was also a youth director at Galloway for part of the time, Galloway Church. So it was wow. kind of a <laughs> coexistence there. But uh, I distinctly remember the feeling of, you know, if I'm going to go try this thing, I've got to go try it. And I would never be satisfied if I didn't didn't go try, but Nashville was 
people say, why Nashville? Because I didn't grow up listening to country music. I grew up listening to Aretha Franklin and blues and 60s AM radio. And But it was 500 miles from my apartment in Nashville to my mama's front door. So I thought, I'll go to Nashville. Wow. Mm-hmm. So you were... Uh in and among the the group that included Fred Noblock, mm-hmm. Fingers Taylor, uh, Mark Gray, Gray, mm-hmm. and that group of musicians in Jackson. Well, but there were more. But. I certainly knew them. I mean, I, I was again, I was a greenhorn, but I knew who they were, and were kind of watching what they were trying to do because back then there was there was no school to how to be in the entertainment industry. So mm-hmm. I was watching people like Fred and Mark and. And seeing what they were doing and trying to figure out how to do it. So, right. yeah, they were kind of early influences on me. So the new record, which has just been released, or is it? Just been the- released. I actually recorded the tracks almost two years ago, but just being busy and everything, just released about a month ago, earlier this summer. Recorded uh, at the Fighting Okra Studios yes. on the campus of Delta State University inside of the Delta Music Institute, which you ran and operated, managed. This is true. It's a great facility, and there was no reason to record it anyplace else. Great great gear, great people. We had a great time. So the people who may, may not know, the, the, the studio itself is in the old gymnasium at Delta State University. Is that right? Mm-hmm. There's actually two in, in Whit, what was Whitfield Gym. Mm-hmm. And so there's two studios designed by Norbert Putnam who are, that's downstairs in what was the gym, and those are two state-of-the-art, beautiful recording studios. Okay, so the title of it is Crooked Letter, Crooked Letter I, Mm -hmm. obviously a nod toward Mississippi. Indeed. Our folk spelling. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Very clever. I love it. And the artwork is fabulous on the actual uh, album record, LP, whatever they're called these days. Yeah, right, right. I still call them albums. It's a beautiful painting by Nan Sanders. Nan Sanders. Is a great friend. A friend and, a, and just an unbelievable artist. And when I was kind of putting this together, I went to her to see if she um, would create something new. And, and that's, you know, it's hard. It's a challenge, not hard challenge to talk to another artist to try to convey verbally what you want visually. Mm-hmm. And so she, you know, she worked with me and tried and tinkered with some things based around Crooked Letter, Crooked Letter I. And I was in her studio one day and I, I looked up on the wall and this painting was there, which is entitled appropriately Crossroads. <laughs> and I love the color and, and everything. And we can give a link for listeners to go take a look at it. Go ahead um, and share that. Yeah. Well, on the, the website, which is where all my music is located, is bigfrontporch.com. And so you can go to all my recordings there and click into the music tab and you can see the artwork and uh, read a little bit about it. But it's a beautiful painting and she's just a fantastic artist. So I was so pleased that she gave me permission to use that as the cover art. And furthermore, I would like to say that Nan Sanders uh, served uh, a tenure uh, as as a commissioner for the Mississippi Arts Commission, and she was a magnificent commissioner. We miss her greatly, and Mm -hmm. I very much appreciate who she is and what she does. She does an enormous amount for arts and culture in Mississippi, no doubt. That's right. Mm -hmm. So let's, uh, before we dive into the record, and Mm -hmm. we're going to spend most of this hour today talking about the record, the songs, the process. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think our listeners would be very interested to know how one approaches the making of a record. Yeah, uh, and so I'm, I'm going to ask you to share about that. But before we delve into that, uh, I mean, it's remarkable 
uh, in a life to achieve sort of the crowning glory of, of, of your industry. And you've won a Grammy, and that's about as big as it gets in the business that you're in. Well, you know, and again, whether you call it luck or circumstance, you know, right place, right time, still to this day, there's no way to really track how Alison Krauss got that song because Patti Loveless had already recorded it. So so my, my hunch is that Allison was probably listening to Patty's records and heard the song because I don't remember any of my publisher at the time pitching the song to her. So got a call from her manager one day and said, hey, send me over the lyrics to Looking in the Eyes of Love. And I said, oh, okay. And she said, has nobody called to tell you that Allison recorded your song? And I'm like, no, but Merry Christmas to me. <laughs> Yay. And so, and of course, she did a beautiful, beautiful job of it. So that was, I was very flattered, very honored. And what record is this of on Alice? What record of Alice? Uh, it's the album called So Long, So Wrong. Mm-hmm. And, and like did say, the whole album win a Grammy or just the song? Just the song. It was a, it was a, in the bluegrass category for her. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, that's terrific. I mean, yeah, you thanks. live in the town where the Mississippi Grammy Museum is. Yes. And uh, Cleveland. And that's Cleveland, Mississippi. That is Cleveland, Mississippi. Yes. Very proud of that. So what a what a great Yeah. What a great coming together, a full circle for you to be yes. in Cleveland yeah. at the institute next door to the Grammy Museum and having having won a Grammy. Oh, it's 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 fantastic. And again, as we go on through the hour and talk a little bit, it's all very a lot of synergy, a lot of, like you say, full circle. And there were hints of it probably years ago before I came back that now hindsight, you know, 2020, it's like, well, of course I was supposed to come back. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> All right. So let's uh, let's dig into the okay. record, okay. Uh, the new LP. Uh, and, and what I want to do is spend a little bit of time with each song. Mm-hmm. We're going to play two songs in their entirety later mm-hmm. on. We're going to play Let Me Get My Purse, and we're going to play parable and i'll have you introduce those but if we could let's start with the first song uh on the album called between the lines uh you wrote this uh it features barry bays anyway you you can introduce it but tell us a little bit about the song the process uh and and what the message is here Sometimes songs take a long time, and that one, and I, I, I should have brought my writing notebook, but I'm pretty sure that one, the genesis for that idea was probably six or seven years ago. There was a student at Delta State in our program, uh, wonderful young man, very talented, got up to his junior year, and, and he's not the only one, but, but at some point he thought, well, I really don't think I need to finish my degree. I'll just go on and jump out there in the business and be mm-hmm. somebody. And that was started the genesis of the idea. And so it, there was this fictitious character in the song um, that is from the Delta and goes off, gets a job in the factories up north, goes to night school, gets his degree. And at some point, and again, I think probably there's a little bit of, uh, for every songwriter, there's a little bit of themselves in their song. So in the last verse, you know, the character in the song starts feeling the pull toward home and comes back. Okay. And... Somewhat autobiographical? Well, you know, you have to figure out which part is me and which part is fictional. But, but yeah. Uh, but, yeah, but, the, but the, the play on words is between the lines. As he left, when he left home, you know, his, his mama told him, uh, son, you got to learn to read between the lines. Because ah. there's so much that's not said out loud, but that's where the truth really is. And so he makes this self-discovery and he circles back and comes home. When you're writing, do you 
have a conscious thought that this can be no longer than four or five minutes. It's got to have this. It's got to have a hook. It's got to have an intro. It's got to have a middle, a beginning, a middle, and an end. Or are you just, uh, let's get the story down on paper and just see where it goes. Well, funny you should say that. You know, I, even in my retirement, I'm still going to teach my songwriting class. And those are those are two things we just talked about recently, those very distinct things. One is being that, one is that just sort of, there's the idea, boom, there's the inspiration, and you just you just go with a flow and you don't edit, you know. But then at some point after you get the ideas on paper or sing them in your phone or whatever, that's sort of what the artist phase is. And then you go back as an editor, and if you've studied your craft, you know, whether it's film or novels or songs or whatever, then you apply the elements of craft to that idea. So you do have a sense of, yeah, if, if you're going to try to have it on the radio at all, it needs to be somewhere between three and four minutes. You've got some kind of form, you know, chorus, verse. And for, for me, for my process, um, I really have to understand what the story is going to be about. And once I understand the content, the content will then begin to dictate the form, whether it's going to be a verse-chorus song or a blues song or, or whatever. So a little bit of both. Great. So let's jump ahead uh, to the song, Let Me Get My Purse, and I'll have you introduce that one, and then we'll play it. Very good. Well, our our mutual friend, uh, Carol Puckett, uh, I'll give her credit for sharing the idea that became the genesis of this song. Uh, There's a good friend of hers who's married to a successful businessman who travels a lot, and uh, that friend is just sort of gregarious, wonderful Southern lady, and uh, her husband was like, hey, you know, I've got to go take a trip to Japan tomorrow. And she's like, great, let me get my purse, you know. <laughs> so it's just like off to that. And, that, you know, it's such a Southern thing. Uh, so that's the genesis of let me get my purse. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm Malcolm White. I'm your host today. I also serve as the executive director of your Mississippi Arts Commission. In the studio today, my great friend Tricia Walker, singer, songwriter, musician, teacher, marcher of the House St. Patty's Parade. <laughs> Tricia, you march in the parade every year on your birthday, more or less. It is. St. Patrick's Day is my birthday, and I'm a proud member of the Otuck Society. And you un- sure are. Under your direction and leadership, that's like a fun day. <laughs> Very fun. As long as my knees will hold up. They're getting a little yeah, tender. You and me both, sister. I hear you. You got a, ran- a brand new record out mm-hmm. called Crooked Letter, Crooked Letter I. You recorded it at the Delta Music Institute's What's the name of the studio? Fighting Okra Studios. And I know surely everybody understands what the Fighting Okra is, but tell people who may oh, not yeah, know may why not know. Delta State refers to themselves as the Fighting Okra. Well, that's right. Well, our formal and official mascot at Delta State uh, is and has always been the statesman, which is sort of a senator character. Mm-hmm. Uh, but about 30, 35 years ago, an unofficial mascot kind of came into existence, I think, through some of the baseball players or baseball fans, and that is the fighting okra. They didn't think the statesman was tough enough. And uh. okra, for anybody who knows, and we can check with Felder on this, you know, can get very tough or slimy or sticky. And so the fighting okra is, you know, he's been on the Food Network and the Sports Network. He's great, fighting okra. Yeah, it's it's yeah. terrific. Great nickname. <laughs> All right, so we're going through the album, and you're talking about uh, Mm -hmm. a little bit about each of the songs. In Mm -hmm. the first segment, we talked about Between the Lines. Mm -hmm. We basically talked about the process of of songwriting. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to move on to the second uh, song on the 
uh, on the album called Everybody's Hollering Goat. And, <laughs> and that's a great one. And I'd love for you to tell of, of that story. Well, you know, there's a picnic up in uh, northeast Mississippi called the Goat Picnic, which was started by and in honor of the, the late Otha Turner, who was who was one of the probably the last real connections between African fife music and Mississippi and, and uh, hill country blues. And his granddaughter, uh, Sade, uh, I invited her. I wrote this song. It was just kind of a fun song. You know, everybody hollering goat. Uh, what's the line? No, no beef, no chicken, no pork, no bull. Everybody's <laughs> hollering goat. So it was just kind of a fun thing. So I invited Charday and, and one of the members of the Rising Star Fife and Drum Band, and they came down and played on the record. And it's just a fun kind of march along, second line kind of a song. And explain to our listeners what fife music is. Well, like a bamboo fife. Uh, it's an old tradition where you would take a, a piece of bamboo cane and uh, burn out holes in it so that it actually became a, a flute. It's an organic mm-hmm. flute. Yeah. Very much of the hill country, mm-hmm. northwest Mississippi tradition, mm-hmm. where it merged with the hill country blues and all it, of that. It did, and I found a reference that it might have also kind of come from um, kind of a mix between the slaves in the 1700s and militia music. Because oh, so it, is, marching, it, it uh, is kind of a military sound, but it's got this fife thing going on. Drums. Yeah. Drum, drum, yeah. yeah. Well, that's great. Uh, and did you know that Otha was once the Grand Marshal of the St. Patty's Parade? Oh, that's so cool. Way back in the day. Oh, man. He, Very he, appropriate. He led the parade. Good. Okay, the third song is entitled Diamond in the Rough. Talk a little uh, bit about that, if you would. That one, when I wrote it, I had an idea a couple of years ago about the, the late, great, and I, and I probably wrote it not long after the late, great Boo Ferris passed away, great baseball player and Delta State baseball coach. And um, so I, I did that and I actually released it first as a single. You know, every two years, Delta State has a baseball player reunion and all the baseball players come back. And Coach Ferris was just a, you know, a, a prince of a man who would remember all of his players' names and... Uh, so forth. So he was, he's just much revered and much loved. And so he grew up in the little town of Shaw, Mississippi, a little spot in the road in the Delta. So again, kind of a play on words of this, you know, he was a diamond in the rough. He was just a, a wonderful human being and came back and, and you know, like the song says, he built a diamond of his own at Delta State and, and built that program. And um, it kind of had the same, the first time I played it live, it was at a, a show in Cleveland and it had much the same reaction as my old Heart of Dixie song did, because um, a lot of people in the audience knew Boo, and they were just weeping and crying, mm. and it, and you know it was so it, it's had a strong impact. Yeah. Art doing its job. Art doing its Moving job. Moving people emotionally. That's right. They couldn't hold it back. So <laughs> I'm I'm fond of that one. It's very nice. All right, Visions of Plenty is the next tune on the on the LP. I think you wrote this with Kate Campbell. I wrote this with our friend Kate Campbell when I was living in Nashville, and I, I sought Kate out as a another Mississippian, and we were yakking one day, and I had I had remarked because back then when I would drive home from Nashville to Southwest Mississippi, I'd drive through the Delta, and somewhere in the early '90s, you know, you, I saw this big building over out in the middle of a cotton field, and I asked somebody, I said, "What is that?" And they said, oh, that's a casino. (laughs) And I went, really? And so long story short, Kate and I began to talk about this and just sort of the, um, you know, the, the, the false pretense, I guess, of, you know, I'm going to make it big and hit it big. So she and I wrote this song called Visions of Plenty. It's, it's a title of one of her records from several years ago, but I had never recorded it. 
Oh, so oh, that's great. Yeah. Okay, the next one is a, a well-known tune written by Randy Newman entitled Louisiana 1927. Uh, it's about the flood, uh, which, good Lord, affected all of us down here. Good Lord. And, you know, the thing about songs, and it's interesting because, like I said, half of these songs are songs that I've had for a long time but never recorded. And songs have a tendency to take on the, a life of their own and kind of morph with time. And, of course, Randy Newman is one of my favorite writers, and Louisiana 1927 is one of my favorite songs. And isn't it interesting that it once again applies, given the situation we've had here in the South Delta this year and just mm. the, the terrible floods that have gone on. So, again, that's one of those songs, if you listen, pardon the reference again, Between the Lines, there's so much that's being said in that lyric uh, if you dig a little deeper into it. So I, I love that song. Now, this one features another great old buddy of mine, Fish Mickey on organ. The fabulous Fish Mickey played on several of these tracks. Fish Mickey from Marigold, Mississippi. You know, it just, again, as I was listening. Now this, living in Nashville. Now living in Nashville. I'm trying my best to get him back. He <laughs> needs to come on home. Fish, if you're listening, come home. Uh, it, oh, it, it's got to have that, that fish touch. I mean, he's got that Mississippi thing. Listening this morning, I could tell it, it sort of hit me in another way, just how Mississippi this record is, because there's some other people I'll mention that played on it as well. Yeah. Fish was the uh, keyboard player and one of the founders of the great band, The Tangents. The Tangents. Mississippi's, Mississippi's House Band. House Band. Oh, you got man. that right. That's right. All right. The, the sixth song uh, on the LP is entitled In Way Over My Head. I've been there a few Ooh. times. Yeah, hadn't we all? <laughs> uh, well, uh, there's not time to play this one and get it in on the hour show. This is, I, I refer to this as my, my tragic uh, Katrina saga. You know, after Katrina, which was really the the impetus to get me to come back home, after Katrina, you know, my heart was broken like everybody else, and um, I kind of began to feel the pull toward home. And I wrote this song not long after Katrina, but I just again stuck it in the drawer. You know, it it it's a fictitious character, but it's based on that real tragedy from the nursing home that was called St. Rita's, where some people were right. left behind. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, the name Queenie. Uh, Jordan came up and just she became the character in the song. So it's a long, epic thing. I hope people will go listen to it. Uh, it's just kind of a tragic, tragic story. And this was just you on guitar singing and telling a story. Doing my best to play some what approximated bottleneck slide, which is not my my first <laughs> my first <laughs> instrument. But I wanted it to have kind of that authentic kind of. Mm-hmm. It's just it's a desperate song. It's a desperate song. Okay. Yeah. If you feel desperate or if you feel hopeful, go tune in and listen to this yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. And remind our listeners where they can hear this music. They can hear this music at my website, bigfrontporch.com. And for those of you younger than me, which hopefully there'll be a lot of you out there, they can find it on Spotify and Apple Music and all those streaming places. So Big Front Porch and uh, just about any place you can look. All right. Next tune, um, number seven on mm-hmm. the LP, is The Money's Good. How about that? Uh, oh, the money's good. That's an old one. That's an old one. That song's probably oh, 20, 25 years old. Again, I wrote it when I was in Nashville. This um, is the second one on here you so far that we've talked about that you wrote while you were in your Nashville period. Yeah, pro- probably four or five of those up there. But the money's good. I did a demo, but I'd never recorded it on a recording. And down there at the kind of the junction of where Music Row starts in Nashville, there used to be um, Shoney's. It was mm-hmm. a Shoney store, and it was, it was where all the aspiring songwriters who didn't have any money would, you know, go in right. and, and eat. And one night, again, there was a, a, I was watching people, and this lady came in who seemed to be having hard times, 
and the story kind of grew around her about being a, a, she used to be a dancer in her younger days, and now that she had been on hard times, she was dancing in some of the adult clubs, and Mm. so it's her story, kind of the moral dilemma of, is what she's doing right or is it wrong? Because she had to feed her children. So mm. it's it's that story. You know, a lot of my stuff, storytelling stuff. Right. Yeah. Well, you're pretty good at that. Well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> There's a place in Nashville now that sounds kind of like the way you're describing the mm-hmm. Oshonies, and it's a pancake place across. A down, pancake pantry? Yeah, the pantry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I've yeah. met many an expat Mississippian oh, yeah. artist, songwriter, musician, right. including Fred Noblock. Right. We've met there, Mac McAnally. We've met there to to have breakfast, brunch, mm-hmm. or a nice visit at the mm-hmm. Pancake Pantry. Oh, it's it's a it's a uh, legendary place, you know. And of course, Nashville's gotten so hot and hip now, you probably can't get in the Pancake Pantry much anymore without a long line. But it was it was and still is a place. Yeah. Now you mentioned about the money's good that it was during your Nashville period, mm-hmm. uh, and and that you cut a demo. Explain to our listeners what cutting a demo is well you know and again if this song if it is 20 25 years old you got to remember this is before cell phones and so a typical writing process would be uh come up with the idea kind of scratch it out and for me during that period it was it was cassette tapes you know cassette recorder and you just sing a really rough version and then you would take it into what would be considered a smaller studio to do a demonstration recording which had uh, a few more instruments on it, you know, good singer. And that would be the version of it that you would take and try to pitch to artists and recording labels and producers, uh, you know, to pitch it to another artist who had a big record deal. So there, there's a process. And, again, technology has changed a lot of that. Uh, but that's what that means. Yeah. And little... explain what a pitch is, because you know, uh, yeah. again, it's a technical, it's a term used in the industry. This is true. A baseball reference. Uh, when you pitch a song... Uh, someone representing that song, whether it's the songwriter themselves or it's what's called an artist and repertoire person or a publisher, it's it's like a sales call. They will go and, and play that song in a in an appointment uh, with somebody that has some authority to make a decision as to whether or not they'll include that song on a record. So they sit there and they scratch their beard and they look at you and then you wait to see if it touched a nerve? Yeah, and you only got, you know, they'll only listen to the first 15 or 20 seconds. And if it doesn't get them then, nah. You're gone. And they say, yeah. and it was nice to meet you, and it's over. Well, yeah, and but the good thing for an encouragement for those who are writing, you know, no doesn't necessarily always mean no forever. It just means no, this is not the right pitch, or no, this is not the right artist. Um, you know, even every, any slight crack in the door, uh, you know, to say, yeah, I can't use that song today, but bring me something else in a couple of months. Yeah. That's a good thing. That's very good. That's a good thing. All right, let's introduce... Parable, Parable, which is the eighth song on the record. Yes. And then we're going to play it uh, in its entirety. Very good. Well, Parable, uh, subtitled Sheeps and Goats. I know it's probably not proper English. But Everybody's hollering goats. Sheeps and goats. I didn't want to have two songs that had goats in the title, so I went back to Parable. So this is sort of a, 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 a loose telling of uh, from one of the parables in the Gospel of Matthew. And again, kind of looking at our communities going, you know, is there something we can do? And it's it's based around, you know, five loaves and two fishes. If you've got some to share, then share it. There are people who need it. And, of course, I placed it in the Delta. So the hook line, of course, is Jesus lives in the Mississippi Delta. And, brother, that's good news. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to the Mississippi Arts Hour. I'm here today with my great friend, Tricia Walker, singer, hey, Malcolm. songwriter, <laughs> instrumentalist, Jack of all trades, master of none. That's what my daddy used to say. (laughs) 
And anyway, great. Yep. New record out. Yep. New chapter in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, turning the page, as they say. Turning the page from, uh, you know, my, my gig at Delta State, and now that I'm a musician again, I can call it a gig. Mm-hmm. Um, that was really the only second what I call real job I ever had. My first one was uh, when I was in graduate school here over in Clinton, my last real job before I went to Nashville, I was the receptionist at the ABC affiliate. Uh, oh, the TV? TV, station? WAPT. I'll be darned. I was at the receptionist desk the day Elvis died. No. And the newsman, real quick sidebar, newsman came up from the back and he had the news on the wire. And there was a, a monitor in the lobby and he said, you better go get something to eat. Uh, you're going to be sitting here a while because the receptionist had to log every call that came in. And there were six incoming lines. So they put it on the, you know, again, this is before internet and all that, they flashed it on the screen and the phone lines lit up and, and I was there for nine hours. Channel 16, yes, it's true. Channel 16, it, it, I'm sorry, what? People just, it was crazy. Were you were you to deliver the what happened or just to say it's true? Just to true, yeah. Yep, wow, that's, that's it. So that sidebar story. That's a great one. <laughs> so you know, a lot of people like to say, do you remember the day Elvis died? Certainly you do. I, so so that job and my Delta State job were what I consider my only two real jobs in my professional <laughs> career where everything else was very entrepreneurial, including songwriting and music business. And, and I have one other uh, technical question mm-hmm. for you. You mentioned a, a term that people like us use all the time. I wonder if you know the origin of the word gig. What it means, where it came from. I know to us it means a job or something that pays for an opportunity. Yeah, great question. You know, I don't know where it came from. That's going to be something. Research. We'll figure it out. Research. We'll look it up. (laughs) Google it. Google it. Okay, you got this brand new record uh, (coughs) entitled Crooked Letter, Crooked Letter I, certainly a reference to the folk spelling of Mississippi. Mm -hmm. A beautiful title, beautiful record, Uh, artwork uh, by Nan Sanders. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, of Cleveland, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. And we have been going through the songs one by one and talking about each one. Uh, and before we went on break to listen to the live recording uh, of Parable, mm-hmm. we were working our way through and we've gotten all the way to Get Back Home. I wonder Get if you could talk home. about that one a little bit. I can. That You know, the origin of that one, I was uh, on a quick train trip down to New Orleans, one of our favorite places. And again, it's a great place to just watch people, you know, just study people. So I was, we were on the way back. And uh, of course, in the Delta, you catch Amtrak over at Greenwood. And so again, we were going through the Delta fields. And I, I was just, I was watching people. And and it was this sort of contrast thing between characters. Uh, the first line just popped in my head and I had my little notepad, you know. Uh, there was a Jesus freak and a guitar picker on the city of New Orleans. And so there the stage is set. And again, they were the they were sort of the window dressing for the more universal theme, which is you know we're all trying to get back home or get back to the garden if you want to. But you know we're all trying to get back to that origin, you know whatever that means, whether physically or spiritually or you know so all trying to get back home. And uh, for our listeners again, uh, how would you describe a Jesus freak? It's a term that we grew up using. Oh, yeah. It was certainly not a term my parents were familiar <laughs> with, but they adapted. Yeah, yeah. A Jesus freak. Well, enough history's gone by to where you can look back. There, there was an actual, you know, a movement in the late 60s, early 70s 
some people say it started on the West Coast and sort of moved eastward where, you know, established religion was not as attractive to the young sort of hippie, free-spirited culture. Mm-hmm. And when they came to faith um, and expressed it in ways that were more contemporary than our our mothers and fathers and such, um, you know, it was it seemed to be freakish. But 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 the young people, you know, of which I was one, you know, had totally sold out to that idea of yes, this is the truth. So yeah, Jesus freak. And do you remember the one way? Oh, absolutely. Where sure. people would point oh, yeah. upward. Yeah. Was that during that same yes, period? Yes, yes, Yeah, I thought so. Yes, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that's when the, you know, again, quick sidebar, that's when a lot of the contemporary Christian music sort of started. Nobody intentionally started it to be a business. But again, a lot of the California bands who were sort of California rock bands, their message changed as to one of faith. And, of course, that affected over in Tennessee people like Amy Grant and uh, Michael W. Smith. And, and so it kind of spread from that movement. All right, so our producer-researcher, Kevin Farrell, has just handed me this note. It says, a gig is a term that was coined in the 1920s by jazz musicians. Uh, It's short for the word engagement. Oh, this is so good to know. This is so good to know. This is terrific. Thank you, Mr. Producer. Awesome. <laughs> All right, so that's Get Back Home. You mm-hmm. and the Jesus Freak and the, what was the other character? Guitar Picker. The guitar Picker. Yeah, We're you have on to say it like s- they get to, on the city of New Orleans. Headed home. Yeah, one, well, let's say one was, uh, one was six months out of parchment, the other was three years clean. Oh, yeah. okay. So it's just their story, and then the second verse is a different set of characters. And the third verse, actually, I'll, a quick sidebar, because I know you have a connection, uh, third verse is a uh, there was a parish priest and a homeless vet uh, in the church on Christmas Eve, and it was taken. One of my previous pastors was very influenced by Keith Tonkel, oh, a very good friend of ours. I was just talking about Keith Tonkel exactly an hour ago. So, so in the third verse, it, there's no direct reference, but but the backstory is that he he you know his philosophy plays a part in that third verse. Terrific. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right, the next song, uh, which is the 11th song on the album, is mm-hmm. entitled I'm Out of This Town. I'm Out of This Town. That, you know, gosh, I hate to write songs that have any ounce of self-pity in, in them, but that that song is what I consider sort of my Nashville benediction. <laughs> I was about to say, was this your your exodus from Nashville? <laughs> this was my exodus from Nashville. And, and I had a, a friend of mine who recently exited from Nashville the other day who heard this and went, oh, I totally get it. You know, Nashville, my time in Nashville, which was 26 years, was great. It's an, it's still an incredibly wonderful creative community. But, you know, I had sort of had my run, um, you know, had a couple of hard time things. And it just, you know, we're getting tired. And it just felt like, you know, it's time when I was beginning to think about going home. And this kind of, you know, fell out one night. And like I say, I, I cringe a little bit because it feels a little bit like self-pity. But it was just, it was a declaration of... Uh, I'm done. Time to go yeah. home. And Charlie Worsham is on this record, uh, our wonderful Grenada, Mississippi recording artist. He's just doing such great things in Nashville now. But he, he played a lot on this record. He did a beautiful guitar solo on that song. Yeah. And so Charlie's one of our young sort of upping. A lot of people think Mississippi music is all historical. Oh, I, no, no. Man, they're missing. I mean, yes, we have a great legacy. Oh, yes. But we, we got brand new young whippersnappers out there all day, oh, every do. day, and making new music. We do, and Charlie's carrying the banner high. He's yes, doing he a is. great job. Yeah. Uh, so the, the last song uh, on the record is called Wistie's Memories. Wistie's Memories. So 
tell us about that. <laughs> and then I want you to talk a little bit about the recording process, okay. uh, the technical pieces of making a record, or just recording a song. Yeah, okay. Well, Wistie's Memories, um, again, taken from experience, I used to go down uh, when I didn't go to the Mississippi coast, sometimes I'd go over to Panama City in that area, and I would always rent from a little lady whose name was Wistie. And she was just very sweet. And this is another one of those examples. This song's 25 years old, and now that I'm 25 years older, it, it begins to take on a different meaning. So the story about um, about an older person and, you know, again, probably going into assisted living toward the end. Not that I'm there yet. Not there yet. Not <laughs> Hardly. There. Not hard. But 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 it's about Wistie's memory and her and you know losing, forgetting things and, and that thing that I see so many people go through. And so it's a tender song. Uh, it's got a wonderful string arrangement on there by a lady in the Delta named Alice Hazen. Hmm. Alice was uh, a Teach for America teacher. She's from Vermont, classically trained. And I wanted to have a string trio, but it's hard to find a cello player in the Delta. Really? Yeah. So That's unfortunate. We, we have a, we have a <laughs> bunch of You got a bunch of them, them down here in Jackson, Jackson <laughs> but I just couldn't get a hold of one. Uh, so Alice, she wrote the part, and actually, you know, she played all three parts. Now, talk about a recording process. Obviously, you can't play all three parts at one time. So in this day and age, in the digital age, you can do what's called multi-tracking. So the way that I approach a record, and I love to produce records, and I, I hope in my in my new chapter I can do some more, back to doing some more producing of some roots music and stuff uh, for other artists. So typically there's a there's a, a phase of the recording called tracking, which is putting down the basic instruments such as drums, bass, guitar. You've got to lay down a good groove, mm-hmm. whether it's an acoustic groove or a more like everybody hollering goat, which is kind of a party groove. But the groove has to be good. If you've got a bad groove, nothing else matters, Malcolm. No. Just no you know. can't go around with a bad groove <laughs> can't on. can't go around with a bad groove on, no. Uh, so you do that. And, and some people, you know, in some recordings, some people to have prefer to have everybody in the studio, all the singers, everybody playing at one time, uh, which is how it was done, you know, you know, from the 60s on back, where you had all the instruments in one room and all the vocalists. And the the process there was just play it till you got the one you liked. Right. But these days it's take more like two, take, take nine, two, take nine, take twenty six. Exactly. <laughs> you know, oh, can you imagine trying to keep your creative energy up? But you did some of that in your day, though, right? Oh, I did. In the studio with a bunch of people. Take, oh, I did. Take, do it again. Yeah. Do it again. And it's and it's great. I mean, there's there's nothing like. And this is the this is the downside, I think, of today's computer-generated music is there's nothing that replaces the humanity of sitting in a room with other musicians playing at the same time. It it may not be technically perfect, but it's very much more human, much more human. And so that's the music I like. Mm-hmm. You know, and, that, and that falls into a lot of that roots music, Americana. So you track, you, you put down your groove, and if you haven't, if you didn't have all the players in the room, then the next sort of uh, step in the process is what's called overdubs. So you've got your, you've got your foundation down there, and then you call in your, your sweetening players like the violin players and the guitar players, and uh, Charlie played mandolin on something, or Fish came in and played organ on a couple of tunes, and then then you'll call in. And while this is going on, typically there's a term when the record is being recorded that the vocalist will will sing while the songs are going on, but sometimes that's considered what they call a scratch or a dummy vocal. Mm-hmm. It, may, it may or may not be the keeper vocal. My personal philosophy is always to set up the recording situation that 
you better be ready to capture it because it's like lightning in a bottle. And if you get that one time, then you got it. You know, you can't necessarily count on getting that energy. That's the that's the mystery and the the magic of it. And there's a lot of great songs in the American musical canon that were one takes. That First were one take, takes. No even thought of do it again. Bonnie Raitt, I just got chills when I say this. I can't make you love me. First take. Couldn't do it any better than that. So, again, the engineer and the technical people, which is not my, my forte, they have to be ready. That's why a lot of the recording process has to do with setup and testing. Those engineers and the tech people, uh, as our producer will tell you, um, they have to have the technical pieces right so that the creative people, when those creative moments happen, they sound good. Gotcha. And then you go back in and you add those little sweetenings and then you mi- you mix it. It's like mixing elements in a cake. You mix it to where it balances and it sounds good. Then there's a final little process called mastering, which just makes it ready for broadcast and radio and things like that. It's a, it's a, it's a very collaborative effort, it's, and it's very fun. I love it. Tricia Walker, thank you so much for coming into the Arts Hour today. Congratulations on the new record, Crooked Letter, Crooked Letter I, and the next chapter. Thank you, Malcolm. I will be seeing you down the road over and over again. Yes, sir. Tune in next Sunday for the Mississippi Arts Hour, 5 o'clock.